name is Neil Middleton and every month we create informative content for you as we talk to important, influential and inspirational people from the world of bats as well as other areas of interest. To find out more about Batability, go to batability.co.uk. Now for the interview, let's do it. And welcome, welcome, welcome everyone. So looking forward to this session of Talking at Bat because today I have got Mark van de Schiep from uh, Belgium. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly, so I'm going to get his correct pronunciation in a moment. And Mark is someone who I have been fortunate enough to have corresponded with uh, numerous times now, I think over the last couple of years. Uh, but today, today is the very first time that myself and Mark have actually spoken to each other and met each other face to face. Mark, how are you doing? Very well. Um, thanks, Neil. Um, so glad to, to be in your show today. Okay, well, thank you for being here. It's, uh, it's hugely appreciated. Um, now, can I just check, how do you pronounce your last name? I pronounced it as Seep, but is yeah. that quite right or am I a little bit no, off? No, no. no. Right, Mark van de Zijpe is the correct pronunciation. Okay. Um, and actually, it's very strange. In, in the Netherlands, so we are the southern neighbors of the Netherlands, they pronounce it correctly because originally the name comes from the Netherlands, I believe. Okay. It means, it means actually someone who comes from marshland, like that. Ah, right. How appropriate. How yeah, appropriate. it is, yeah. It is uh, even, yeah, it, it's true, and it's very funny. Yeah. To the West, the UK, the British people, they cannot pronounce my name correctly. Yeah. And South, the French, neither. In the right. East, the Germans, neither. They right. cannot pronounce it correctly. Okay, so going to see your last name again. Uh, Sabre. Sabre. Yeah. Seba. Okay, I will. G. This is a combination typical for the Dutch language, I think. Okay, okay. I will try and get it. I'll try and get it correct at the end. But by the time we get to the end of the talking bat, I'll have probably forgotten exactly. But I'll try, I'll have another bash again in about an hour from now and see if I get on. Um, so, quick introduction for Mark. Uh, Mark describes himself as a freelance bat researcher. But unlike many people we have on Talking Bad, Mark isn't actually a full-time professional uh, ecologist or a full-time professional bat person. His day job work is working for an organisation called Ratech as a sales engineer. And by night, okay, or when he's on holiday, that's when he focuses on his bat-related activities. But what I want to ask you about, first of all, uh, Mark, is your day job. Uh, I think I'm right in saying you graduated as an engineer at university or college, and then you've ended up working here. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, actually, when in Belgium, when people are 18 or um, you, you finished the secondary school, then you need to make a decision. What are you going to study? And there are some let's say advisory committees in the secondary schools that try to help you out. I wanted to study biology actually, but 
the guy said, no, don't do that. There's no work in, in biology. You can study engineers, uh, industrial engineers. Um, I studied it in, in Austin, actually, for a year. And then um, it's quite, yeah, it's not like a civil engineer, of course. That's five years. It's, it's university degree, but industrial engineer is four years. And you can work in the industry. I started working actually in a production team leader, um, soybean refining plant in, in Eber, near where I live. Yeah. And that was actually in a full continuous system, nights, weekends. And that was until 2001. Uh, so that my first bad working years were when I worked in, in this full continuous system. Okay. And then um, I thought it's quite heavy to work in the nights and weekends and to do it all my life. Since wanted that actually. So I looked for another job and then I got the opportunity to start at uh, company Ritech. Okay. Actually what we do is just distributing bursting disks and safety relief valves, actually metallic, safety instruments for the industry okay yeah. to protect uh, chemical plants pharmaceutical plants against disastrous explosions actually okay okay so that's my work and we work with with customers visiting customers phone calls quite a busy job during the day yeah but i like it actually and for some reason i think i went back then in my free time to my Real love, which is nature, ever been nature, yeah. and fauna and flora, and the landscape and whatever. So and that went a little crazy then with the bats. Yeah. So were you always interested in natural history as a child? Uh, what was the spark? What was the thing as a child uh, or in your younger years? That got you hooked on nature, do you recall? Yeah. Where I live, actually, it's in, in an open agricultural land. It's not uh, very rich in nature, but the garden, which my parents actually planted in the late 1960s. So um, that was already very nice because there were a lot of birds and insects and even bats. Uh, near the, the small pond here in the garden. And that was really interesting. And I was, as a, as a child, already interested with my neighbor, uh, same age of me. We went out as child here in the fields looking for flowers. And we made even some small publications as a child. I do not have these publications anymore. But okay. it was uh, like a sort of a mini series. Yeah. What nature ons beat, and that's in, in English translated. What nature offers us. That was the title of that uh, small publication. And maybe my oldest brother still have some copies of of it in his attics. I don't know. But I do not wow. have it anymore. Wow. And then you got a lot more interested in bats specifically um how did that happen what 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 caused you to i yeah. suppose focus your attention or more of your attention on bats 
when I was around 15 years, I think, um, every now and then, I, I had already some books. Um, my oldest brother is, is 14 years older than I am, and sometimes I, I went with him to some bookshops where you can buy secondhand books. And he is interested in history. I was interested in nature, so this was on different um, locations in, in that shop, and I bought some books. and. And then also I bought a small book. It was by a Dutch professor, actually, uh, Mr. Punt. These were these orange books. And this professor made a small booklet of bats. And actually I bought it. I found it very interesting. But actually what, what in hindsight, what he did is he made some uh, drawings or sketches of hibernating bats in the Marlow pits in the Netherlands. Okay. So there were already, yeah, images of bats hanging on the ceilings, like later mouse eared bat and combat as well, other bats. So that was my first book I, I bought at around that age. And I remember I was fascinated with that book. And when I went on holiday with my parents to Italy, I took it with me and I read it in Italy. Okay. And that was the spark. That was the... The first book, let's say, I bought then also a bad box. That was my first detector. And in the garden, I, I was very fascinated with these, um, these sounds. But to be honest, I, I couldn't really, I hadn't clue what it was. It was so varied for sounds, I couldn't yeah. really. But that was fun and I, I kept it. But Back then, it was not yet a definite spark, let's say. Yeah, okay, okay. So uh, we'll come back to the bat box in a minute, but where about in, where about in Belgium are you actually based? Uh, we've got Brussels here in the centre. Where, where do you live? Where do you do most of your, your bat work? Um, actually, um, I live, um, let's say, a few kilometres west of Kortrijk. You see it to the, to the west of... of here. Yeah, there. okay. So in here somewhere else. Yeah. Okay. And actually, um, still live there. And the border with France is at five kilometers here from, from there. Uh, okay. And, and is this where uh, we're going to talk uh, later about your pond bats and uh, the Benton's bats and stuff? Is this roughly where you've did those studies or were those in other parts of Belgium? Um, bats are very rare in Belgium. But I went into the combat probably during the early days because there was still a population to the west. Um, actually, in the western border, you have a canal. Yeah, somewhere okay. more to the west, there, okay. lowland with canals and meadows. And there we had a, there was a combat population. Fortunately, it's gone now. It's okay. completely void of combats. Okay. But at the time, there was a, a nice roost. Actually, the first Belgian roost was found there. Wow. Um, but bombets can be found, let's say, in Belgium at various locations, but in, in low numbers. It's a very rare bat, actually, in Belgium. Okay. Compared to the Netherlands, there are more in the Netherlands. Okay, okay. Right, we'll talk more about those hopefully shortly. But I'm going to go back to this slide. I think you told me that your very first bat detector was a heterodyne 
bat box, bat detector, similar to this one, yeah? Um, which is exactly the same as myself. Okay, I started off my batting with uh, one of these. Um, and, and of course, using these bat detectors, you, you had to know your heterodyne sounds. And this CD that was produced uh, by Michel Barato, uh, somebody who I both know we've got a massive amount of respect for, this, this CD in my early bat years and the accompanying book by Tupine, uh, with, without these, I would have been really, really lost, to be honest. Was that a similar experience for you? Yeah, exactly the same. When in 1997, I was really more sparked by that, actually by a book from Kees Kapte in the Netherlands. Um, that was a book, uh, translate, it's a Dutch book, but in English it's That's in the Landscape in the province of North Holland. And that was so nicely written and that was a real spark to me. I bought that book and then I bought immediately the CD from Michel and that was also a second spark and then everything went yeah. blank. Yeah, and I, and I still, I st I'll still think that CD um, and Michelle's done many things since then, but I think that CD, as we see it here, that that was a massive step. You know, I mean, we've I kind of really feel it really was a significant step for people living in Europe to have access to all of that. Now, I'm sure he would look back on that now, and he would probably wish that. He knew more back then, you know, but but it was just it was massive. It was massive. It's really, it really is. Yeah, yeah. If you're enjoying listening to our podcasts, perhaps you would also be interested in joining Batability Club. To find out more about Club, which includes hundreds of hours of accessible training resources available to you in your own time and at your pace, go to batability.co.uk. Thank you. Uh, do you still use heterodyne bat detecting when you're out in the field? Do you still find heterodyne useful? Yeah, I very much like the heterodyne sounds. So beautiful sounds. Yeah. yeah. When I started in 1998, um, Definitely, I bought the Peterson D240 and it has a very good heterodyne system. Yes. Very good sounds yeah. and heterodyne. I love yeah. that uh, very much. But at the same time, it had a time expansion. So I, I used both actually in 1998. Yeah. And that's maybe because at that time, yeah, you know, um, we are living in an incredible short time span, such so much revolutions in the electronics and the internet and things went quick, very quickly move forward and yeah. when I started with the D240 I was let's say more like a lone wolf I was not with the work group that work group at that time yeah and started to familiarize myself with it going into the wetland area where I worked at that time 
But soon after I joined the work group of, of the Natuurpunt, which is the biggest um, nature conservation trust in Belgium, and they have a bad group. Yeah. And um, when I came in touch with, with them, it was actually, I saw uh, an announcement of a, a walk for public that this group was organizing in Wooden. And I thought I would go there and then I, I went and it was a mar marvelous walk with kids and families and rats. And then, and after that, um, I went with, with the bat workers and we, we get into a pub and, and we talked about, um, and at that time, no one else was really involved in time expansion. It was brand new actually. And, I had already very strangely made a first recording of a pondat at the lake near Ypres. I printed off that spectrogram. It was a very long pulse. I took it with, uh, with me in, in, in the pub and I showed it to, to my colleague. He said, wow, that's really amazing. Wow, yeah, yeah. And, and I think I can totally relate to some of what you're saying there because back in the... 1990s yeah we didn't even have mobile phones uh you know the internet was it was there but it's not like today it was unusual to communicate with people uh, by email back then there wasn't facebook there wasn't a uh, whatsapp um and unlike you yeah i was i was in scotland I was trying to learn this stuff and I had some people that we were around each other that we were trying to learn from each other, but we couldn't just go on to a computer and Google something, you know, it, that, that just wasn't, that just wasn't there, you know, <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's nice that you describe it like that because I can, I can relate to that. Um, the Peterson D240, right? I've used one of these detectors many times myself. I've never owned one. But even that bat detector, and Lars Peterson is a complete genius. He came up with this really, uh, from a European perspective anyway, before anybody else had done anything like this, I feel. Um, but that was not an easy bat detector to understand how to work straight away. And there was an awful lot of trial and error getting the buttons in the right position and all this kind of stuff. Did you find that as well? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you need to familiarize yourself. I remember we were with some colleagues. Um, I, I think it was near the coast and the coastline in Belgium, it's a lot of apartments and, and we, we were there because there was a, um, a Vespertilio Marinus there. And uh, we thought there was a, a bat flying out and we, we made a recording, but some cables were not sitting correctly. So we missed it. Actually. Yeah, yeah I've, I've been there. I've done that many times. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's an amazing bat detector. Now, you sent me this picture and, you know, I know exactly what this is, okay? Because not quite as a... I don't have, I've probably got about one suitcase full of mini discs. Okay. 
you're sitting there with at least four. So this is what we used to do, folks, okay? And before this, we used to take these detectors and record the sounds onto cassettes, okay? If you don't know what a cassette is, Google it, okay? And then we had this amazing invention that came out called the mini disc, where we could record this stuff digitally onto miniature CDs. And would you believe it was even possible to have different track numbers and timestamps and stuff like this. And when we were living through this as bat workers, this changed, this totally changed our lives. Is that how you felt, Mark, when you started getting into this? It was a complete change, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 It was so easy to work with it. And uh, I, I started with the D240 with the mini disc. And after some trial and error, it worked. And the left top corner of that open box, that's my first bat detector excursion near a canal near Keepers. That was in March, end of March 1998. Okay. And I made recordings and I saved it. I labeled it uh, very minimal. Initially, that the canal and the dates and so on, and there was a first uh, Dobenton's bat on it. I was very delighted to have a Dobenton's bat. Um, I saw it hunting um, over the water. That was amazing. You know, when you're experienced and you have seen thousands and thousands of Dobenton's bats, it's nice. But when you see it for the first time, like, like a child uh, during yeah. bat box. It's like a mystical experience. It's so great. Yeah, yeah. I've got to say, um, you know, I, I often get asked what is my favorite bat species. And I always say without hesitation, the Benton's bat. That is the bat that I've personally done most work on. Um, I've done work on the Benton's bats in the canals in Scotland. I've done radio tracking of the Benton's bats. Uh, I've I've ringed many, many, many hundreds of the Benton's bats in Scotland. Uh, I have just got, I, I just love the Benton's bats. I mean, a lot of people say Barbastel or an enthusiast Pipistrel or, you know, but for me, I, I, I think the Benton's bat is an excellent bat to get into. Yeah, yeah. And you've made quite a lot of... Uh, well, you've done a huge amount of work specifically focusing on what we would call the trolling bats. Uh, so folks, that would be the Benton's bat, pond bat, and long-fingered bat. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about Mark's work on those species uh, shortly. I, 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 well, that's what we're going to do. What, what, what? What bat detector kit do you use today? So if you were going out tonight to record bats uh, using a bat detector, what are you using now? Um, I, normally, I use uh, the D2000X. I've changed in 2007, actually, okay. from the D240 to the D1000X. It was a very expensive detector. and. When I saw it coming out and the price, I said, oh no, I will not, not buy it. It's, it's too expensive. But then at that time, in hindsight, 
I was uh, on the workshops with, with Michel Barato, one of the workshops, and I went in a, conservation, in a, in a, a talk with um, actually Yves Tupinier, and he's a very good friend of Michel, and he's also always present in, in, in the workshops. Uh, he's actually a professor in, in Lyon University. And he said, well, um, the D2000 is coming out, and I, I collaborated with Lars uh, on it, and it will be revolutionary. Yeah. Really yeah. so much. So I thought twice and three times, and then yeah, I couldn't hesitate then and I, I bought it. I, I was really convinced that if if I were to continue and, and to move forward, that this was maybe a good a good opportunity. And I've never complained. It's it's very expensive, and I know many people cannot afford it. And yeah. that's it's too expensive actually, but it's it's professional detector and so so much more detailed in, in, in time expansion. Then I started in 2007 back again collecting all the species with the new detector because it's so much more sensitive for the high frequency parts, especially the myotis bats. Yeah. And it had built-in memory cards as well, did it? Yeah. 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 You had... So no, so, no, so no more mini-discs. <laughs> no more mini-discs, just a few hard disks where all yeah. the stuff from 2007 up to, to now is on. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I remember when that detector came out, I've, I've seen... I've seen them being used a few times. I've never personally used a D1000, but uh, but I remember it must have been quite shortly after it came out, I saw someone using one. And at that time, it really was, once again, it really was uh, ahead of the game, you know, at that time. And of course, today we've got so much choice. Okay, we've got all the stuff that uh, Wildlife Acoustics does and Tickly Scientific and Elicon and of course, Stoll Peterson. Um, but, but back then, you know, back then there wasn't that many organizations doing this kind of stuff. Um, it was, yeah, it was pretty amazing. You know, <laughs> pretty amazing stuff. Yeah. So D1000 would be what you'd be using today. Brilliant stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. fine. Right. You've got some notable contributions on certain things that people involved with bats in Western Europe would hopefully be familiar with uh, beyond Belgium. And um, first of all, just to get the thing that I... I'm involved with out of the way quickly. I just want to say on camera, thank you very, very much for the contributions and the correspondence that uh, you shared with us for the second edition of our Social Calls book. Um, we actually started corresponding on that before John's book came out, and I hadn't appreciated that you were also corresponding with John about his book and I've got to say the contributions that you've made to John's book uh, yourself working with a few other people on the various chapters that you got involved with just amazing amazing stuff um 
So check out Mark's contributions on each of those publications. And I also, I think I can say on behalf of Stuart Newson, because Stuart's a friend of mine and we collaborate a lot on stuff. Um, but I know that he's extremely appreciative of uh, the assistance you've given him over uh, quite a long period of time that's fed into what's now called the BTO Acoustic Pipeline. So do you want to talk about anything to do with any of these things? Because you're obviously a guy that um, you're really, really happy to communicate and share your experiences with, uh, with others. And you're very proactive in that. And, and it makes, for somebody like me, and I'm sure John and Stuart would say exactly the same, you just make it so easy to communicate with you about the stuff that you know about. Is there anything you want to say about, about these things? Yeah. I have always been, from right in the beginning, very open, everybody in the work group asking something, I would share everything, don't keep anything for myself. And in hindsight, when you're so open, you get a lot of things back that you cannot believe. So people are so friendly and happy and, and you get much more back if you give something without any any requirements. So that, that has always been some something I did. Um, but really, when it comes to publication, because I, in Belgium, we are a small country and not well known, and we do not make publications to small country. But our calls are now in, in, in your book and in John's book, but that's, I have, I own a, a lot to, to Alex Lefebvre, who is actually for many years, the, the co coordinator of the Belgian Bat group nationally. Now he retreated, uh, but Alex and myself, we are both of us studying and then making recordings of that for many years. And Alex also knew John personally. And so that's why probably I, I also went in, in John's work, but it was not the purpose to be that much uh, recordings of us in, in John's book, but I think, and that's something to do with, with the, the detector. It's, it's such a good detector, the D1000X, and the, the recordings are so, so nice. And there was a little bit shortage, I think, and yeah, we, we have a very big library and, and that's um, that's very nice for us actually to, to, to see some of our most wonderful recordings all these years are, are in the book of John. That's I'm very pleased with that. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's an amazing piece of work. Uh, obviously, I know John, um, and he's so passionate about, about this stuff. And um, and, the, the, and, and, and this latest book of his, um, I mean, it's a journey. I've had, uh, I remember his very first publication, which was many, many years ago, which most people wouldn't be familiar with. It was an A4 soft copy publication. And that then evolved into his British Bat Calls book. 
uh, which many people over here and, and elsewhere in Europe, I believe, uh, used extensively for many years. And I then he decided to go Europe-wide. And I kind of did take a sharp intake of breath when I heard he was doing that. And I kind of thought, this could be, no, this is going to be massive if he does it. Uh, and and he has done it and, it, and it is amazing. And I think together with the uh, uh, Michelle Barato's uh, acoustic identification book, I think these two books together cover so much information, but in different ways. Um, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, do, well, talk a little bit more about how you met Alex then, uh, because I know that, as you've said, that is someone who you've got a huge amount of respect for. I've never, I've never met him myself, so I, I don't know him. But yeah. tell us a little bit more how you came to be in his company. When I started in 1998 uh, as uh, completely new in, in to the vets, Alex was already a, a legend in Belgium, together with with um, Jacques Ferrand at the national. Uh, Nature Historic uh, um, Organization in Brussels. Alex uh, lives in, in near Antwerp, some more in the east, well, center east of the country. But they they did publications together about all the hibernacula of the bats in Belgium. So when I joined the workup, I saw that book and I read it and I thought, wow, Alex, okay, he was the, also the coordinator of our bad group, but our bad group is split per province. So I was at this, when I started, I my only contacts were in my own province. And that's not where Alex lives. And I thought maybe on one occasion I, I could talk to him, Alex. And then it went totally different. Um, we, we met each other back in 2000 actually already. Um, when we had a small project to, to try to find the roost of combats in, in my area. And a lot of people from the World Group National came also to, to the Eber area. We did telemetry with, with some students of the Antwerp University and that group, and we managed it. And from then on, Alex and, and myself, we are so much interested in the bad detectors and we collaborated more and more. And then from, let's say, the mid, 2000s. We also started to do some traveling to the to the neighboring countries uh, south of Europe, because we were also interested to to make recordings of other bats uh, species. And yeah, that's also something special. So once a year we do a trip. Uh, last years with the COVID, it's more more in Belgium, but. Before that, we went to Sevilla, for instance, in the southern Spain. Yeah, yeah. Because also we have a nature photographer, Roland Verlin, who is very famous in Belgium, and he said to Alex, "You need to go to there because there is a roost of greater nocturnes in, in the city park." Wow. Because he has yeah. photographed them, and then we went there and the detectors. We made some very nice recordings of of greater nocturnes and. Some of those are in the book of John uh, published, so that's really amazing. Wow, wow, wow. 
Talk a little bit now about Michel Baratot, because uh, we've mentioned him a few times up until now as well. Uh, I've corresponded extensively with Michel over the years, but I've never actually met him face to face. But uh, you've been on quite a few of his workshops. And uh, I think through Alex, you were introduced to Michel. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah actually, um, back in the early years, Alex went to. Um, International Bat Congress, I believe, somewhere in Bourchard in Center of France. And he met Michel and they were talking. I was not there, but Alex told I know someone in Belgium who has a lot of combat recordings. Michel wow. said, Wow, I was interested. And then he corresponded. I, I made a CD for Michel with the best recordings. And he was so thankful for that. He could take it up in his um, work that he was doing. I was so grateful and he invited me then to join his uh, work group workshops actually. Yeah. That's uh, once in a year in France, all the bad detector workers come together. It's very friendly. Amazing how, how professional these guys are with a lot of presentations. And I learned a lot actually from from the bad group and Michelle's so friendly person, it's an amazing person. Yeah, yeah. One, I... yeah, a few years later, Michelle, uh, he uh, asked me, uh, can I come over to your area? Because he wanted to visit the cities of Bruges and, and Ghent and together with a friend of him and his wife. And I said, yes, you can come. And, and Michelle and his wife, they, they were here. Uh, uh, in the house, and they uh, we went together to the, the cities, and uh, actually uh, we were sitting here in this this uh, room uh, some years ago, yeah. discussing, and it was amazing because at that time I also was in touch with some people in the Netherlands who were making recordings in, in the, some oil platforms in the North Sea, and all of a sudden they knew that Michel was here. And they said, well, we want to meet with Michelle. And they came from, from Groningen, a four-hour drive to my to my home to meet. And we, had, we were meeting here with Michelle. And yeah. we were looking to, to recordings that they have made that were possible. Neil Sony, so that was a nice discussion. OK, OK. Wow, wow. Amazing stuff. Uh, I very unfortunately had the opportunity to go on one of Michelle's workshops uh, probably about seven, eight, nine years ago now. It was one that he was going to do in English um, because I, I I struggle with with French language. I, you know, if, unless the workshop was in English, I would really struggle. Uh, so he was doing an, a workshop in English and I was actually all booked up, ready to go, but unfortunately, um, I couldn't make it at the very last minute and I know quite a few people that were on that workshop from the British Isles and they, they talked very very highly of it so uh, and Michel shared with me afterwards he shared with me the presentations and some pictures and recordings and stuff like that the stuff that I missed <laughs> but but it was so nice of him to do that you know it was so nice he was very uh he was very generous, um, just as you describe, you know, friendly, generous, uh, approachable, 
all of these things. Um, a great, great yeah, uh, yeah. researcher because Michel started actually by listening to the bats uh, before he he, were, he familiarized with with the, the spectrograms. But you were just on on listening, and he said his group and his uh, methodology is actually it's similar to people that are yeah hours and hours in the field listening birds and. Yeah. When you are so experienced, you hear small differences, and that's of yeah. course difficult. Yeah, it's not yeah. an easy method, but uh, we learned a lot from Michelle. Yeah, yeah, right. So here's some uh, of your publications. These are available on your ResearchGate site, which we'll give details of later in the presentation, folks. Um, but also, I will possibly put links to all of these underneath the video on the club portal. So if you're watching this on Batability Club, if you look underneath the video, uh, you'll possibly find links to some of the things that we've been talking about today, including uh, some of what we're about to talk about. Um, amazing, amazing publications here. Uh, I was particularly drawn uh, a couple of years ago to to this this is a PowerPoint presentation that you shared uh, on the internet, and I remember a couple of years ago um, trawling. Okay, excuse the pun. Trawling through this myself and just being absolutely fascinated by the pictures of the spectrograms and the explanations, etc. And similar also this one down here. So these are PowerPoint presentations. These are actual publications. Do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, some edited highlights of what we're looking at here, Mark? Yeah, well, to the right, the PowerPoints. Actually, um, when I started in 1998, I was very lucky to, to have already the first year some combats. This is because we had a, a roost and we found it in 2000. They were actually in a brewery the pombats, they were about 30, okay. and they spread over the canals near Ypres. And so I, I collected quite a lot of recordings of, of pombats in my early um, years as bat detector because they were in, in my vicinity. And that was a very rare bat in Belgium, contrary to the Netherlands, with this big population in the low parts of the country. In Belgium, it's rare. and I was already fascinated by this bat reading through Case Captain's book, actually. And I thought, well, once I need to go to travel to Netherlands to find this bat and to make a recording, but then, yeah, I was only a few months and I had an, a first tone recording in my vicinity and it was not known to occur there. So, you know, it's, it's not the, the most difficult bat to recognize with with a bat detector, even a heterodyne, the sounds are sometimes so, so typical, very nice sounds in heterodyne when they are emitting 20 millisecond signals. The longest actually is 26, 26 milliseconds I have ever recorded in the phone. It's a yeah. huge long call. So nice when you listen it to 35 kilohertz and that's not the difficult part, but the more difficult part are the shorter calls, because this bat is so varied, like the other bats. Yeah. They fly over land and, and close to the reeds, and the dispersals are shorter. 
And for me in the beginning, it was like, yeah, it didn't have a clue. Uh, the shorter calls, I was very carefully, was it Tau Bentons, was it Ponga? So, but more and more recordings I made. And then when I attended one of Michelle's workshops and I believe it was a presentation by, by Thierry Disca and Alexandra Hakar, who, who were starting with passive detectors back then. And they discussed um, some of the insights that they had with, with all these thousands of calls that they have viewed in the spectrograms. That the shapes are different between the Optus Schreibersi and the Pipistrellus Pygmaeus. So that's that are emitting at around 50, 55 yeah. in QCF. I went back to that, I found it very interesting. I have never looked like that in detail to the signal structures of the, the Pondats and the Dobentos, but when starting to look at it, I was trying, well, I was actually seeing some differences. And in that time, I also visited some bigger roosts of combats in the Netherlands, made a lot of recordings there. <clears throat> also, uh, with some of the Dutch workers, we had some excursions there. So I collected in that period much more material on the combats. And I, it was like a puzzle that together that you could see the differences even in the short signals even yeah. with the bats flying over land we were at um, the famous colony in, in the church of Cherkwart in Friesland and the bomb bats are flying out of the attics there and big bats uh, flying just over your head over this yeah. the church square yeah and yeah and then looking at the signals they were different and I started to compile it and then I was also very interested in, in, in the Cappuccini's bat, so the long bat. Yes, yes. But I just visited it once. Uh, it was in the Valencia area, a known couple of known foraging areas by the telemetric study of the Basque um, um, academics who studied a lot of, of, of this bat. Yeah. And I was lucky to, to have very nice recordings and I went look to these recordings, some of the calls were so different. I have never seen that. I've seen thousands of the Wentons back. And I said, this is something completely different in shapes yes. and frequencies. And then I put together the presentation that you see there uh, on the top right uh, corner. Yeah, yeah. To the left, that is more, it's in Dutch. Um, this was also the period that I started with uh, an SM4 for, for wildlife acoustics, passive okay. listening. And I did it once uh, in 2016 in a forest uh, area in the winter. It was uh, quite interesting. Yeah. And back then uh, in 2017, the Pomblat roost in Ypres was gone. We don't know why, but yeah. It's a, a suboptimal habitat for, for this species here where, where we are. But we found another one near Bruges, um, a small one as well, but the maternity roost. Okay. Colleagues of, of myself, like Bob van der Dries, who is now the coordinator of the pet group, he found then the roost in, in, a, in a home, actually, in a village near, near the canals, beautiful canals there. With the poplars and with reeds, and then I went 
there also to to make um, recordings of of outsides during yeah multiple nights to to observe it and it's funny sometimes at some of these locations in in, in april or in may you see in the beginning of the evening, you have almost only pipistrels and obtrusious pipistrels and some noctules. But then late at night, uh, when it comes colder, you have Dobenton's bats and pond bats hunting okay. there at some of these places. Okay. So, so tell me something for the benefit of our listeners, okay? Um, ignoring the acoustic identification visually looking at a Dobenton's bat compared to a pond bat over a canal. Um, is there something visually that you're seeing that's making you say that's definitely a Dobenton's, that's definitely a pond bat? Uh, you know, so size is going to be one of the things I would imagine. Um, would you say with your experience, uh, it's notably obvious when it's a pond bat and if so for what reason sometimes it, it's so obvious it has already been published uh, in the older literature in the netherlands because they did study it as well and pond bats has have several ways of hunting when they are low over the water surface they can be very similar in behavior than the bentons but then coming close to the reeds circling over the water flying quite slowly, let's say, maybe a little bit faster than a Dobenton's bat. When you see this bat actually very close to the, to the bank where you are standing, and you can see it, it's, it's bigger. It's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's obvious, it's obvious, it's a bigger bat. But when it is far away from the banks, it's not that easy. It's not okay. that easy. Yeah. But then, um, especially in the summer, Pombats can hunt in a very spectacular way, and that's no no other bat in Europe does that. It is flying very fast over the midline of, of a canal, very fast, and that's the only um, flight style where, where they emit the very long calls of 25 milliseconds. It's always associated with a straight line, low of the water, and high speed, very high speed. And you can see it. I, I also started with the night uh, vision goggles to, to observe it. And then um, could see this behavior very well. And, and it was strange because it was also already published, but I could see it as well. Okay. That's hunting for a while, packing, uh, flying uh, very fast over the canal, turning at some points, but easily 100 meter tracks that they repeat as if they are patrolling that part of the canal. Yeah. And all of a sudden, they, they throw themselves up in the air very rapidly. Okay. And you can see them chasing big insects. So okay. very yeah. spectacular. And that yeah. drove my attention. That period of time, I also collected some publications, especially from James Fuller, who is really a specialist in Canada on, on the the MOTS and that interactions and pelotonic frequency hypothesis you certainly know as well. So only the low frequency and the high frequency bats eat many MOTS. Yeah. The mid-frequency bats, like the pond bat, are supposed not to eat many MOTS. And yet the, the, the insects that they were 
chasing after very look like big moths. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That was strange. So I decided to to also try to to videotape these behaviors because they are so so nice and spectacular actually. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Amazing stuff. Really interesting. Really interesting to hear your thoughts there. And I mean, here, here are some slightly more, well, very more, uh, considerably more formal papers uh, that you uh, have published. I think the one over here on the right, this was your first proper publication, I think, if you want to call it that. Uh, but the two publications that I'm personally really familiar with are is the one on the left and the one in the middle. Um, and I I found these fascinating reading. I really did. Um, and a huge amount of work must have gone in, well, did go in to the production of these papers. Uh, how, how did you feel having done all of that field work? All of that uh, learning, that self-development, you've spent lots and lots of money on equipment and mini discs and <laughs> publications and books and stuff. And you get to the stage in your, let's call it career, okay, your bat career, where you're beginning to see the hard work being produced in a, an academic format. I mean, that must have been very, very uh, satisfying for yourself, yes? It really is, actually, the left-hand publication, the Hunting Strategy. I worked together with Professor Ludo Holzbeck, who's a very good friend of Alex as well, and professor yeah. at the University of Brussels back then. Now he's actually changed jobs, I believe. He's um, in the Eurobats Committee for Belgium, so big Batman in Belgium and a great professor and great statistics. So he helped a lot, a lot with, with that. But actually that publication is what I was just describing, the hunting strategy, the bots. Um, although in the diets, it, there were no many mods found in, in the diet studies of the pombat, but I believe that will change because very recently, maybe the number one pombat specialist in the world, and Anif Kaharsma, don't know if you know her. She's studying combats telemetric studies in the Netherlands for for many years now. Okay. And she now just contacted me a month ago or two months ago. And she had um, done a DNA analysis on combat droppings, and there are a lot of mods in there, a lot of big mods. Okay. So that's interesting. But that she will make a publication of, of that. But that's what we were seeing back then. And I wanted actually first to publish it in the Journal of Zoology, but um, the reviewers there said, oh, you don't have enough evidence of the, the visual, and they suggested me actually to, to videotape it. Okay. But they didn't wait actually on with Ludo. We decided to publish it in Lutra, and Lutra is actually the scientific journal on okay. um, mammals in, in the Netherlands, actually very, uh, in, very nice reference as well. Um, so, and, and it was published there and we described what we have seen, also made some analysis back in hindsight, then but we come to it in a minute, I think uh, I then succeeded to also to 
to capture the scenes with, with the night uh, vision camera of the bombats hunting the big insects. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing, amazing stuff. Uh, and yeah, we're going to come on to that in a minute because uh, yeah, there's a YouTube channel where there's quite a lot of the uh, recordings on, uh, which is fascinating to watch. But we'll tell you more about that shortly, everyone. Um, yeah, well, I, I've just got to say, uh, especially the, the publication here in the middle, the differentiation between uh, the Benton's Plum Bat and Long Fingered Bat. Um, yeah, I, I found that so, so helpful. Um, and I think I'm right in saying that uh, there isn't a crossover in distribution between pond bats and long finger bats. I mean, you're either in an area where you've got uh, debentons and pond bats, or in an area where there's debentons and long fingered. I don't think you get pond bat and long fingered together anywhere in Europe. Is that correct? Um, yeah, maybe the north of Bulgaria and the south of okay. Romania. Okay, maybe, yeah, yeah, that's... We, yeah. we went and, and I believe had on Limpets as well before, but okay. we had a project with our bat group uh, that was years ago in, in Transylvania. We went oh. there with Alex, Michelle was there too. Okay. And our bat group bought some D1000, now D40, D240s, and we gave it to the bat workers of the Romanian bat group. They could work with it. So that was an, an initiative of, of our Belgian bat group. And we were there in an upland area with a bigger, moderately fast running river, and we had a pond out there. Okay. It was the first time, and, and I said to Michelle, here is a pond out. And Michelle, it was the first time that he has seen and recorded a pond out. Wow, wow. And for ripples, and, and there was a waterfall, so not really a pond out habitat because it's a lowland species, but it was there at, at 500 or plus meters high in, in the Transylvanian area. And if you go to the south, you have there the long finger bats in Bulgaria. So maybe there's some overlap, but no, not much, I think. Yeah, yeah. And in Western Europe, you know, if you go into Belgium, France, Spain, Portugal, no overlap there, as far as we know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then back to that um, publication, actually. Be very honest. So I, I made the best recordings, and maybe the high frequencies are a bit higher than published in literature due to the thousand six. So being so sensitive for the high frequencies, but it is more or less what also what has been published in in the literature on the pond. But so it's a good summary, but it's not new. It has been published before. Okay. The only thing I think is new, I didn't find it anywhere, or very long calls in the Dobentons, but I was really stunned to yeah. see those long calls in Dobentons, but I was hesitating in the beginning, is that the Dobentons was 10 milliseconds and more. And that was really um, something I thought worth to publish as well, yeah. which is also in, in that article. Yeah, yeah, uh, amazing article. Here's a collection of photographs that uh, you sent me, which a slightly different take, I think, on things. Do you want to just give us some thoughts and memories and associations to do with what's going on here 
Yeah. yeah. This is an, another band, actually. It's it's an enthusiast baby style, and it was in 2015. I was also interested to 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 study bats in trees, actually, and we had a woodland near deeper where noctules were roosting, and that was very fun, and also the phantoms bats. But I wanted to know also more about Natusius because in that area you see in the picture, it's actually a remnant of fortifications around the town of Ypres in Belgium. It has for a short period, was belonging to the French territory. The French okay. enforced it with big moats, 25, 30 meters wide, with a lot of old trees. And there were a lot of Natusius our work group, we also put on some bad boxes and there were also some trees with cavities. And that was a period when I started with the, the night side, which is actually a UK manufacturer of, of night vision goggles. And these, um, the, the tree that you see in the middle, that was actually by hazard that I found it. That was actually in the middle of the night, well, not in the middle of the night, around midnight. I had a lot of social calls and I saw that, that crack in the tree. Then I went back there in the evening and there were Natusius pipistrals flying out, I believe with them. Uh, it was in April. Okay. So in the summer, they were not there anymore, but in, in the autumn, again, these were actually mating um, groups of five to 10. Okay. I went around the lakes and found many of them and actually and also made some video recordings. So that is also about um, strongly linked to, to wetlands and I'm very interested in wetlands already from a child and Pombat and Obentonsplat are the most obvious link to the wetlands, but Nadusius Pipistrel is also about that. Yeah. Lot uh, present in, in these wetland areas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you ever come across particolored bats in in your part of Belgium? Uh, Very rarely, but okay. our bat group has some um, people that found particolored bats in, in apartments near the coast. Okay, they are brought in the uh, bird uh, recuperation center. Let's put it that way. To recover and to be released so there is some some migration but unlike in the netherlands there was a small maternity roost i believe in a village okay. we haven't found it in belgium so far okay okay no fascinating stuff fascinating stuff here's some pictures i mean we've, we've talked uh, a little bit about uh, some of the things going on here already I think from memory that this is uh, yourself with Alex. Yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm liking the combination of the bird watching. Uh, I'm assuming you're bird watching yeah. and, and, and the wine. Is, yeah, is, 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 this, is this normal uh, to, to do this? Yes. <laughs> Alex and myself, uh, when we are going to travel to the south to, to record bats, we have a bottle of wine every time or here. <laughs> Here as well. Okay. Okay. This so is what, actually the Doniana Natural Park in Spain, where you have oh. um, flamingos, 
Okay. These uh, birds very nice. When we are going out to the south to study bats during the day, we also try to study birds or yeah. take up the landscape. And this um, was actually the two pictures on the left hand side was one of our yeah. travels to the Spanish Pyrenees, but we stopped half the way um, um, with, um, in, where we met with Michelle. Michelle said, well, you can sleep in our home and come to us and we will eat something together and do a yeah. walk in the, in the wood uh, next to my house. Okay. And we did and we found actually, you can see it, uh, that's Michelle and his wife, uh, Sylvie. And yeah. we were walking in that forest and then we discovered the barbastel behind loose bark and Alex took the picture of that. So that was nice. Wow. Wow. Oh. And then that was half the way. And then we went to, to Riglos. Um, and that was also a place that uh, nature photographer Rollin, he pointed Alex out. That's a good place because there are escalerae that was confirmed. Rollin took okay. pictures, sent it to the Spanish guys. And they said, yes, it's, it's, it's escalerae. You can see the, the entrance to the, to the, gallery which runs through the, the dam of the, the lake it's not easy we, we went in there and we found the, the, the scalerai and also in low fits but it's dangerous because it's uh, very steep and it's uh, yeah tens of meters uh, cliff um, to 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 the dam so okay okay right so uh, you would have had to have been very very careful yes yeah yeah, yeah. But we managed to make some nice recordings of the Escalade and leave some of them also in, in John's book. Yeah. And you were definitely sober when you did that. You didn't have any wine that night. No? <laughs> A little. A <laughs> lot. So, so what beer do you drink? Do you have a, a favourite beer brand? Uh, yeah. Actually, I'm living not that far from the Abbey of uh, Westfleten with uh, one of the Trappist uh, beers. So we had once a Westfleten with us, or, but uh, that was in one of our earlier visits. Oh, for right. some reason, um, the bottle fell down and we were in a tent and the tent was smelling more than a day. The Trappist <laughs> yeah. beer. Yeah, I drank a lot of Trappist beer uh, for my, it was my birthday. Uh, a few weeks ago, and my wife bought me a box of Trappist beer, uh, many of which were Belgium origin. I particularly like, I don't I think it's a Belgian beer called Pédou. Do you know Pédou? Uh, I may be pronouncing it wrong, but... Uh, yeah, okay. But I'll, uh, I'll maybe send you a link to it. It's not a Trappist beer, but it's... Uh, it's a, it's 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 an eel. It's very very nice. Uh, when I go to France, um, we live about a kilometer away from a beer, a, a craft beer distributor, and every time I I go there, uh, I go to. He's called Arno. I go to Arno, and I get a couple of crates of uh, various beers from Arno for my <laughs> for my trip. <laughs> But yeah, yeah. Anyway, we'll have to have a beer sometime. Yeah. <laughs> Promised. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. 
So we mentioned earlier uh, your YouTube channel, and we'll put a link to this underneath the video as well, folks. Um, but there is a lot of stuff on this YouTube channel. I, I, I confess I have not watched. I have not watched that much of it myself yet because uh, I only found out about it a few days ago. Um, but yeah, this this is different again because this is lots of your night vision equipment and observed behaviour. Do you want to talk a little bit about this? Yeah, I actually started to do so because I really wanted to, to have that images of bats in flight and that's not easy because they are flying rapidly and far away and especially the pombats yeah when they are hunting in the mid middle of a canal it's easy 10 20 meters from you so I for many years wanted to 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 videotape it, but didn't succeed it until uh, I came across um, a British make actually for of, of night vision. So also there you have a lot of evolution in the last decades. But with that one, it was possible to to zoom in and okay. you see it here. It's uh, on a, a woodland path. It's looking to a um, nocturnal roost actually and you can zoom in some okay. of these videos of the nocturnes that leave the, the tree the woodpecker hole actually um you can videotape it and what i also did i had small recorder and also a bat detector um which i put together and connected so you had then the simultaneous sounds of the bat detector heterodyne sounds yes Get with the images of the bats and I did it for some roosts in, in churches like serotines and octules in the trees, in the Natusius pipistrels as well. But then on, on the canals, I also tried to, to videotape the, the, the Benton's bats or other bats and on bats flying over the canal. And then uh, I I think it was in, in the area which is called Weerribben that was in one of the combat um, areas in the Netherlands with a lot of combats. It's actually a big swamp area and with all canals. And, and then uh, there I managed to, to videotape actually combat that was hunting all the night long over a small stretch of the canal and there was this, like a small side canal coming in at right angle. And I believe that's maybe a hopover of, of not, so I don't know, but it was always hunting just in front of that smaller side canal and often um, chasing big insects like, like knots. Could videotape some of these events that they were capturing the knots. They fly very quickly in the sky, they, they, they jump upwards and then the moths let, let them fall down on, on the water surface and then combats are lowering the fly and pick up the, the moths from the water. Right. And yeah. you can see the, the, they bite the wings off and the, you can see the wings dropping on, on the water while in flight. So that, right. that was yeah. uh, really actually supporting the work that I did with, with Leo on the first publication. Yeah, yeah.
well, uh, everybody, I strongly suggest you search like this YouTube channel um, because, well, it it gives you it gives you the pictures, it gives you it gives you so much more that uh, will add to uh, what we've been talking about today with Mark. So uh, take a look at that, and yeah, we'll stick the link underneath the video to make it easy for you to find it and uh, subscribe to that YouTube channel. I don't think it costs anything to subscribe to that channel. And if Mark puts anything new up, uh, you'll be made aware of it. Yeah, so, wow, amazing stuff. That is taking us almost to the end. That has been absolutely fascinating, Mark. Um, thank you. Thank you for your time today. Is there anybody that you need to thank or make reference to that you feel that we've forgotten? Is there anything like that you want to say before we sign off, Mark? Yeah. Well, maybe uh, a small note. So uh, we mentioned Michelle, we mentioned Alex, but there are many more people. And also we are standing on, on the shoulders of our predecessors. And, you know, Ingemar Allen in Sweden, he's also one of the guys, Hans Bagus. So there are many more people that I have either emailed or spoken to. Um, so if I have achieved anything, it's it's only thanks to the support of so many people. So it's it's very amazing the bad workers. I'm an amateur bad worker, but professionals and amateurs together, it's like a family. It's a very small group of people, and no matter if if you are from from France or Belgium or no, no frontiers. So we, the topic is so specific, and it's, yeah, a lot of friendship um, across the, the borders uh, when it comes to studying vets, and one learns from another, and, and so you can reach more because if you're uh, working on your own, it's not the same. So yeah, yeah. No, I can. Uh... I totally endorse what you're saying there. Um, you know, we all owe so much to so many people, and and I think the people, uh, well, for for our generation of bat workers, uh, the people that came before us, uh, many of whom thankfully are still around, um, but the people that came before us, they did not have access to the technology and the internet and the knowledge and the publications and stuff that we have access to today. I mean, that generation prior to ourselves, they really were, um, you know, looking in the dark. Yeah, 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 you know, Absolutely. yeah, yeah. And and I think we were both fortunate enough to at least have experienced some of what they went through in terms of challenges with technology and stuff, because we were we were getting into bats, I think, Mark, when technology was beginning to change. Yeah. But they had had probably decades prior to that where it, things 
probably haven't changed that much over that period of time compared to what we've witnessed. Yeah. If you look to it, the progression is, is going even faster with, yeah. with the social media. The, the, in the yeah. beginning, it was difficult to find publications, but now the yeah. stream of information is so fast. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's accelerating, and that was not the case back then, as you yeah yeah and the number of people that were also involved or interested in bats i mean i remember for me it was i think almost 30 years ago and my my amateur background was very much birds ornithology yeah so i knew an awful lot of ornithologists or birders or bird watchers yeah, that was my circle and I remember when I started getting into bats, the people that I hung around with who were into other aspects of natural history, they just thought that bats was a very odd thing to become interested in. They, it was very odd. It was very unusual. There were not that many people that interested. Um, did you experience similar yourself? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, um, I must say that the public is, is now much more open for bats. Yeah. And that's thanks to that walks with, with families and the kids, they are so enthusiastic. Things have changed, but indeed, in the beginning, when I studied bats, I remember we, we tried to make appointments to visit church attics, and then sometimes Oh, the people didn't let us go. That's that is. Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I can totally relate to that. Totally relate. Okay, I think we're going to bring things to a close there. Uh, everybody, uh, thank you for watching this. I hope you found it interesting. Uh, I personally have found this a really fascinating uh, look into the journey that Mark's had. Um, especially in connection with the trolling bats. I just find that group of bats personally very fascinating. And, and it's just been a total pleasure um, for me to finally get to meet this gentleman after having corresponded with him over a few years and to also thank him personally for the contributions that he's made uh, to the bat world. You can also read about his research and some other research papers that haven't been mentioned today that he's co-authored if you go to the ResearchGate uh, website as quoted at the bottom there. Uh, please check all that out. So Mark, just to finish things off, I just want to say thank you very much for your time today. And if you could say goodbye to our audience, I will then stop the recording. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks very much. Great fun, Neil, to talk to you and um, wish you good uh, further continuation with uh, your fantastic um, interviews. It's very funny and yeah, thanks a lot uh, for your attention and the collaboration. We hope you enjoyed this Talking Bat interview, which is unedited audio-only version of the original video test session. The full version, including video, is available via Bettability Club, our online training platform. 
To find out more about Club, go to butability.co.uk. Till next time, thank you. Thank you.